Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, internauts, seekers of information, critical thinkers, those who look beyond knowledge and into truth, which is by definition singular in case you forgot. Today's episode is with James Wilson of MTB Strength Training Systems. James is a mountain bike coach and he lives in Grand Junction, Colorado. We will unpack all the critical details on our discussion. If you're not a mountain biker and you think you don't care about this podcast, you might want to hang around because there are some interesting discussions about pedal stroke theory and how James invented a pedal called the catalyst pedal, which is a little bit different than the average mountain bike pedaling platform. James also has a lot of content on his YouTube site and offers a lot of training programs specifically geared towards strength training for mountain bike cyclists. So go forth and check out his stuff, but listen to our episode first. I will apologize in advance because I recorded this from home and it's a little echoey, but this is how things roll these days. So you just got to go with it and embrace the content. We did the best I could to control my echoey voice. That is to say my amazing editor, Jenna, she manipulated the buttons and did the things, but you can only contain my echoiness to a certain degree. So there you go. Without further prognostication, enjoy James Wilson. All right. Well, today's guest is James Wilson, the owner and creator of MTB Strength Systems. James lives in Grand Junction, Colorado, and he also runs and owns the Catalyst Performance Center where he works with clients in person. Well, in a normal year, I don't know how much you've had the opportunity to do that this year. Are you guys, are you still seeing clients one-on-one? Um, you know, with the mountain biking side, I, uh, I actually own a, a small jujitsu school. So I use the Catalyst Training Center. I, I use it for a variety of things. And so one of the things that I do out of it actually is coach uh, jujitsu. And so um, you know, I am doing, still doing some work with that area, especially with the kids. Um, but, uh, yeah, as far as like the mountain bike coaching side, yeah, the coronavirus definitely had its impact on it. I was actually pretty bummed cause I had scheduled a, uh, uh, a riding for a lifetime camp, you know, as a subject that I, I started talking about over the last uh, year or so. And, and it seemed like a lot of riders were really interested in it. And so I, uh, was going to have my first, like, you know, two day riding for a lifetime camp really focused on like, what do you need to do to not just ride, you know, better today and tomorrow, but for like years and years into the future. Right. And, and so, yeah, I had it, it was sold out like super quick. People were super pumped on coming. And then, uh, yeah, we all know the rest of the story. And right. so those kind of got derailed. Um, you know, still doing what I can like through the internet, which is funny because I've been doing this for since 2005 is when I put my first website up. So a lot of people were scrambling to try to live in the new reality. And I'm like, man, I've been sitting here the whole time, guys. Welcome to uh, the future. So, uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, like I said, it's definitely had some challenges, but doing what I can. 
Well, thanks a lot for making time to come on today. I just feel like I found your work through the, you know, internet rab rabbit holes and, and wormholes. And I, I think we have a lot of parallel philosophies. You know, your, your emphasis from what I've seen is very oriented towards educating riders about the simple concept that if they train off the bike and use strength and conditioning to their benefit, they're going to, it's really going to benefit their function on a holistic level on a much larger level and a lot of people i don't think really have got that message yet I, it seems to me that many cyclists think that riding a bike is the only way to be faster on the bike and my message has been about educating athletes that cycling actually has some pretty serious sports specific compensation patterns and that those patterns especially when magnified over time tend to make you actually a lot worse athlete uh rather than better what i mean by that is you know, if you're talking couch fitness, if somebody's super sedentary and they start riding a bike, they're going to get fitter. They're going to become healthier. They're going to move towards health, right? But then there's a plateau and then even a decline as cycling starts to downregulate some of the basic things that we need to do to be humans, to engage with the surface of the earth, have strong and stable ankles, for example, have good posture, uh, maintain a good force ceiling, right? things like that. And I know we're speaking the same language here, so I want to unpack some of your ideas and philosophies on that stuff. But I really think that cycling is a sport that can take us away from global health on the whole. And so when we counterbalance that, then we, just like you said, you, you enable principles that enable that sort of actualize or bring to fruition lifetime fitness, lifetime health. And, you know, cycling in particular, it's a sport that tends to sort of also attract the engineering mind to a degree, I'll say. The mind that's very analytical, very, you know, type A, accomplish all the things, do the focus on the more is better kind of mindset. And it points you in that direction and you sort of end up very, we'll say focused and kind of almost puts you in a physical corner in a sense. Mountain biking is less so in that category than we'll say road riding or maybe track riding or even long distance gravel where you're on the bike for six, seven, eight hours, kind of really in one position doing the same thing. In particular, road races, you know, tends to really morph a rider's body into a certain shape and a certain function. And that's part of the practice of the sport at the very high end. That's kind of what you're doing is you're signing up for that. And then you spend the rest of your life undoing all those patterns. That's exactly where I'm at. You know, I've been racing for 35 years, been a pro for 15 years. Now I'm doing things like running in Vibram five fingers so I can build my strength the strength and function of my foot and my ankle stability, but it's taken me many years of work to get to that point. So as one example, so I'd like to start off some of my interviews with a kind of a pop quiz, although it's not really a pop quiz because I put in the questions, but tell us what you have for breakfast today, man. Breakfast. I had some uh, homemade sourdough bread and homemade kombucha. My wife is spoils uh our family with uh with those two things i usually have that maybe throw in an egg but that's a pretty common breakfast for me are you familiar with a bakery that's on the front range here by any chance it's called moxie i am not no so they're they're like at the forefront of this sort of sourdough movement they work with local farmers and they only use grains that are of very high quality and also more on the ancient side of the hybridization crop spectrum so you know, less refined, less hybridized, uh, which is not to be confused with GMO. Sometimes people use those terms interchangeably, but 
Um, definitely not using GMO. So it's all organic and it's slow fermented sourdough. You know, they, they use that sourdough starter. And I found that I'm, I'm in that perfect spectrum of people where if I eat a ton of really just straight up normal wheat, that's like white flour, you know, no sourdough, no starter, not fermented. Uh, my digestion kind of goes, mm, falls off a cliff pretty quickly, but I can have some bread in that cat. As long as I don't overdo it, that's the challenge, right? Cause it's so good. Especially if you're eating your wife's homemade bread. No, man, I think bread gets a bad rap in today's nutrition culture. Um, you know, again, the bread that most people are eating is not the same bread that people were eating throughout history and that, you know, things like sourdough, um, actually have some health benefits when, you know, uh, made correctly and like anything else, it's, you don't want to overdo it. Um, you know, I mean, but you can overdo drinking water. It's called drowning, but you know, we don't demonize water. So it, uh, um, so yeah, no, man, I think that, that, that it's interesting to hear you say that. Cause I, I feel the same way that, that there's your, the, what your, the context for your experience can change. And then that's going to change your experience. Right. So if you go from eating, uh, you know, processed breads all the time, and that's the context of your experience, well, then you're, you're, Hey man, according to my experience, bread's bad. It's, it's not good for me. It's not good for people, you know, all these things, gluten intolerance and stuff. And, and you think that that's it. Like, Hey, you know, this is it. This is the only experience that I could have. And so, you know, getting people to realize like, no, you can, if you fundamentally change something about the experience, like, you know, how the bread is made, then you're going to fundamentally change your experience. And that's going to change how you view your, you know, your opinions on something like bread, which, you know, ironically is one of the things I go through with the catalyst pedal, which is the pedal that I invented because, you know, people's context for flat pedals are pedals that are too small that only allow you to get a single pressure point of stability into the platform. Mm -hmm. And when you change that context into a platform that allows two pressure points, it's a different context. You can't really draw conclusions as to like what your experience is going to be when the context is fundamentally changed. And so it's, you know, that's, that's a tough thing for people in a lot of different arenas because, you know, your experience is your experience and it is valid. And but getting people to understand that there are ways to fundamentally change that experience, whether it's through, you know, people have had bad experiences, strength training, right? Like one of the reasons that cyclists poo poo strength training is, they tried strength training. It didn't really work for them. So, you know, uh, riding my bike is the way to do it. And then, but well, what were you doing? You know, how were you strength training? What was going on? Like, there's so many things about the context of your experience that play into like, you know, what the outcome was, but yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's getting people to keep a nuanced perspective on things that gets, uh, gets difficult, but, uh, yeah, man, bread is not as bad as they say. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Agreed. Well said. Uh, yeah, and I definitely want to get to your Catalyst pedal. I, I mentioned to you in an email exchange we had that I've got a pair of those on my townie and I'm loving them. I think it's a super cool product and good for you for going out and getting a pedal made, man. I can only imagine that was uh, quite a project. But before we get there, maybe let's just zoom out and give our audience a bit more context about you. Tell us more about you. How'd you get started in mountain biking? Maybe you want to back that up with your athletic kind of path and, and journey there and whom have you studied and how'd you end up in Grand Junction and all those good things? 
It's definitely been an interesting path. You know, looking back, you can see different points and experiences that at the time, you know, didn't really seem like they made as, you know, whatever. And then you get down the road and all these things come together and give you, you know, a unique perspective on things. And so my journeys definitely, you know, helped me get a little different perspective on things than your average cycling coach. Um, and so I actually started out, uh, you know, I first started working out in my garage. My dad had one of those, you know, Sears barbell sets or whatever with the, you know, the cement plates with the plastic coating. And you know, I didn't know what else to do. So I'm just out there doing, you know, bench pressing curls. What else do you do with a, a barbell? Right. And uh, so, but in high school, I started to take a little bit more seriously because I wanted to put some muscle on so girls would pay attention to me. And so back then, you know, this is the early nineties, everything is bodybuilding. And so I still remember like getting all pumped to go, you know, to the newsstand and, and see if the new issue of muscle and fitness was out to find out, you know, the, the new supplement and the new routine I needed to do and all this stuff. And so I, uh, you know, got a little bit more serious about starting training. And then, uh, my junior year in high school, I started to run, I forget one of but somewhere around middle high school, I started to run track. And so track was where I first got introduced to using strength training to enhance performance. It was like, oh, you can, you can do something else with strength training besides, you know, build big pecs and biceps here. Okay, this is cool. And so I, uh, um, you know, I, I really got into strength training. Like I have an analytical mind. With, it's funny because I, I do have that engineering um, attitude towards things. And so like I really was like, all right, you know, I got to figure out. I, m- I remember sitting in the back of math class uh, trying to figure out the perfect body part split for my workout program. Right. And I'm, I'm not paying attention to the teacher. I'm sitting back there like, Hey, if I put biceps here and then I put lats here with that, you know, how will that work? And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, eventually I realized like, you know, this is not normal. Like my obsession with learning about how to improve the human body through training, I uh, wasn't normal. So, you know, after, uh, I had my year of college and parted my way out cause I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, eventually, you know, a year or two later, just like, all right, let's be a, a trainer, man. Like that seems like up my alley. I really still like working out, you know, I wasn't running track, but I was still like trying to be, uh, active and, and, you know, running just, you know, trail running and stuff. I ran some cross country, which I really enjoyed. I, I got certified as a personal trainer and I was living in Santa Barbara and that's where the international sports sciences association was located mm-hmm. as luck would have it. Right. Just kind of one of these, these interesting things. And so, the ISSA has a tech support line that you can, and I still think, you know, you can call if you have questions as a trainer on your test. Well, I would just go in and ask them. And so I, I met the guys and, you know, Charles Staley was working there, the guy who came up with the EDT training system. And so um, I did really well on my test. And so they uh, offered me a position um, basically as an intern to come in and work in the tech support department. And so my job was to know basically everything there was to know about training. Like if somebody called on the, the phone and had a question about training or their test or what was in the textbook, like I was supposed to know it. And so like uh, I ended up working for them, you know, going from an intern and, and, and worked for them. So for a couple of years, like that was my job was just like learn everything there is to know about everything in the, in the fitness field. And it was really cool. Like I got to, you know, meet some really smart people and, and, uh, um, you know, it was, it was a really great experience that helped, you know, lay this foundation. But around that time is when I got into mountain biking and I got into mountain biking kind of through the back door. I, I, uh, I got a mountain bike to ride to work because parking in downtown Santa Barbara is atrocious and I didn't live too far away. 
And so I was like, I can just ride a bike. So I went to the bike shop and I wanted to get a mountain bike because I thought road bikes look kind of weenie and a mountain bike looks like a BMX bike, which, you know, I rode as a kid. So I'm like, I'll get a mountain bike. And so I had fun like riding around the street and, you know, riding to work and, and stuff. But I, I knew that there were trails around Santa Barbara and I just didn't know where. And so one weekend I got bored and I decided to ride up and down a fire road. Mm-hmm. And man, I was hooked like right off the bat. And, you know, mountain biking is, is cool because you get like the runner's high of an endurance sport, but then you get the adrenaline rush of an action sport. Right? Like I tell people like if an action sport and an endurance sport got drunk one night and had a baby, like mountain biking would have been the, the, the result, right? It's a really cool and unique um, blend of these two things. And so I, I just, I loved it, man, right off the bat. And so I, uh, but coming from the track background, and just kind of also having the knowledge base that I had, I knew that, well, if I want to get better at sport, one of the first things I need to do is start training for it. You know, what can I do with my strength training to start enhancing my performance on the bike? And because that's just what you do in track. I mean, it's like everybody in track works out. You don't, you, you don't run fast in track without working out. Like it's just part of the culture and, you know, doing strength training specifically. I, I mean, when I, when I'm saying working out do, talking about strength training, mm-hmm. so I couldn't find any good info, man. This is back in like 2000 and there was literally nothing for mountain bike strength training. Like the little that you could find was bodybuilding BS in disguise. It was like, we'll do leg press and leg curl and leg extension, you know, three sets of 10 on each. And it's like, this is not how athletes train. Like, I don't know like how mountain bikers are supposed to train, but I know that that ain't it. Mm-hmm. And so I started just apply the things that I knew to my own training and just trying to, trained for the physical realities that I knew I was experiencing as a mountain biker. And so kind of started coming up with my own training system and had some other people that were working out with me and they were getting good results. And so in 2005, I'm like, well, maybe there's other people who are interested in this as well. So I put up my first website and that's where MTB strength training systems was born. It was basically my, my, the, 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 the idea was to create a website where I could share these uh, insights and things with other mountain bikers because I knew that I was frustrated not being able to find these answers. And so I figured maybe other people would be interested. And so it's funny, man, like I still don't know where those first few newsletter subscribers came from, like how the hell they found the site. But all of a sudden I had like 10, 15 people on this newsletter thing. And I'm like, man, I guess I better send an email out to my newsletter list. And so Again, this is 2005, and since then, I have sent out like you know two to three emails a week, um, you know, for a long period of time, creating three pieces of new content a week, because like I was just working so hard to try to help educate mountain bikers on the importance of you know it went beyond strength training, right? Like you know, uh, I was one of the first guys to start to introduce kettlebell training to mountain biking. Again, in 2005, like there was no mountain bike strength training. Like in some ways I helped create the niche and I helped popularize and and introduce people to kettlebells. And again, people, you know, they look around today and they take all this stuff for granted, right? Like they don't realize 20 years ago there, this information wasn't there. It didn't exist. There were no riders or or strength coaches who were devoting themselves to mountain biking. There, there, There was none. And, you know, today we have several, you know, and, and so it, it's, it's, it's great that we see that there's actually a, a, a niche and a place for coaches to focus on mountain biking, but it wasn't always that way. And same thing with kettlebells. Like people are like, oh, kettlebells and mountain biking, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, but at one point there, what, that 
people didn't use kettlebells period and they certainly didn't apply them to mountain biking and yeah. so you know i got into kettlebell training again early 2000s um and you know have quite a bit of history with that but uh so that was the the, the start of mtb strength training systems and since then I've had the chance to work with, you know, some of the top writers in the world, some of the top teams, you know, write for a lot of the top websites and, and magazines. And, and really, like I said, just working super hard, trying to help educate writers on the importance of, you know, good strength and mobility and nutrition and mindset. And like basically all of these things that you do off of the bike that go into how well you're going to perform on the bike. And then also uh, how long you're going to be able to do this for. And so, you know, being able to balance those two things is also something that you have to keep in mind because one of the things, again, I've worked with riders at the highest levels, right? Like I've seen what it takes to win national championships and be on the podium at a world cup. Okay. And the things that you do to your body to get to that level aren't healthy. That's just not like you're sacrificing yourself. You're sacrificing your health. I forget where the, the saying came from, but it goes where good sport begins, good health ends. Mm. And, and, and understanding that, right. That like, you know, these top riders, they may be doing things that, and that the trade-off is worth it for them because they're paying their mortgage based on their performance, but it's not worth it for the average everyday rider who is not getting anything for their, their efforts. And again, it's, it's, you know, keeping that balance in mind um, is again, something you got to watch because people are really enamored when they are into training they're, what are the pros doing? What are the pros doing? You know, oh, I saw them doing this crazy box jump thing or they're, you know, doing this. And it's like, oh my God, you got no idea the background that led to all of that. Right. And, you know, that they're a pro and you're not. And so, um, so yeah, just kind of those two messages, man, just really trying to help people understand how those things can help them. But that's, hmm. that's, uh, that's, yeah, it, it uh, how I got here. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I got three really good lessons or I'll say messages that from what you just said. And one of them is that, well, maybe you weren't saying this explicitly, but I think you'll agree with me that, man, even today in 2000, well, it's 21, I almost said 20, man, strength training, there's so many coaching programs out there that prescribe strength training. And I'm not just talking, I'm talking mountain bike, road, cross track, whatever, any discipline of cycling. And the program is just in the freaking stone ages. It is, yeah. there's still coaches out there prescribing leg presses and hamstring curls and, you know, knee extensions. Like, yeah. come on, you know? So, and I, I'm not here to bag anyone else's coaching. Like, you don't know what you don't know. There are areas in, there are lots of things I'm learning about. So I'm not here to, to judge another coach and say you're a bad coach. That's not my message, but... I will say that, man, we can do so much better. There, there are programs that are light years ahead of that stuff. And there's so many that, that stuff like programming like that is so elemental. Another point I want to, that I heard you say that I want to emphasize is that, like you were saying, athletes, really part of our job as coaches is educating an athlete to think beyond the bike. Meaning most athletes or many athletes, I'll say, tend to think about their stress, their training stress, and they isolate it from other stress. Stress is stress. And you know, the other one that drives me nuts is when they separate their riding from their cardio training as if like riding isn't cardio training. It's right. like, holy crap, man, like that. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, but to your point, it's, you know, separating the riding from the other things that they're doing is not good. And by that, I think you'll agree, like all things this is the problem in road cycling. I think this is arguably more endemic 
because everybody's so fixated on power and power meters and the performance management chart, which is specifically this chart that outlines your ride stress, which is calculated on your average power for every single ride for the entire year. And you get this nice little graph that shows you how fit you are. And that's a very useful model, but it's also very myopic because it doesn't, you can't track. I mean, I can go in the garage right now and annihilate myself in eight minutes with a kettlebell. Like I can put myself into the hurt locker, no problem if I do the right swing, right? With the right technique and the right number of reps, I can, I can ding myself super hard where I'll have lasting doms for a few days, maybe even longer if I really nuke it. But that's not going to show up in a PMC because I didn't have my power meter on. And it won't even show up if I'm wearing a heart rate monitor necessarily because depending on the types of reps you're doing, you may not achieve enough cardiac load to get a higher enough heart rate. And that's only one example, let alone, you know, the fight you have with your girlfriend or the job stress you have because you just got furloughed or the income taxes you're figuring out how to pay or whatever other stress, life stress people have. And stress is stress. It all summates. And so people, but athletes, I think, tend to not think this way. They get on the bike, they throw their leg over the top tube and they're like, well, my coach said that I was supposed to do this really hard mountain bike ride today with all these, you know, standing hill intervals. And then I was going to go, you know, smashing all these descents and work on my flow and work on my weight distribution or my attack position or whatever you got going on, whatever your recommendations are. But if you're smashed, if your nervous system is totally fatigued because you've been so stressed out at work, you make it halfway down that trail and... either the workout is ineffective because you can't focus enough to really be laser sharp or worst case scenario, you make a big mistake and you end up ass over tea kettle and then you're calling your coach with a broken collarbone from the emergency room or whatever. Yeah, it's definitely a problem. That's one of the reasons I'm a fan of heart rate variability and monitoring your HRV. Uh, It's definitely getting more and more popular, which unfortunately means that people need to educate themselves and start being smart about what HRV solutions they're using because There's people out there that just see dollar signs and, you know, so not all HRV solutions are the same. So, you know, personally, I use the, uh, the Morpheus, uh, system, which is, uh, Joel Jameson, uh, he had BioForce. Um, so I've been using HRV myself personally for, God, I don't even know how many years it's been a long time. And I think that it's one of the best training tools that you can, uh, use to make smart long-term training decisions. But, you know, basically for people that don't know heart rate variability, um, and there's a lot of science behind this is, is the, the, you know, you have a, if you ever seen like, um, you know, a heart rate monitor, right. Or, you know, the, the, the ECG and it's got the little spike when the, the, for the heartbeat. And so there's the distance between those spikes is called the RR wave. And the distance between those spikes is supposed to be random right so like when they say that you have a a heart rate of 60 beats per minute they're not saying that it's one beat every second like a metronome it might be but that'd be actually really bad you know what they're saying is that you're averaging over this period of time this many so you know the 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 time between the heartbeats is actually variable and different and so the greater that variability is well what what this does is it they found that this ties into your, your your parasympathetic nervous system or, uh, and, or your, uh, sorry, your autonomous nervous system. And so you've got your, your sympathetic and parasympathetic, which is basically your fight and flight responses. And so your, your HRV is a reflection of kind of, you know, it's like a teeter totter, right? It's tilted either one way or the other. 
And so, you know, either tilted towards the, the fight or flight where you're relaxed or whether you're towards the fight, I mean, where you're, you're stressed or whether the rest are relaxed, right? Mm -hmm. And what happens with a lot of people, like you're saying, is they get locked, that teeter-totter gets locked over in the stress side. And so it, without some sort of objective measurement to tell you like, yes, you are, then it's really hard for athletes who are used to looking at numbers to justify taking a day off, right? Like if you feel like crap, well, you know, if you don't have some objective way to, to measure, like, you know, is there something that you really need to take a day off for, then it mm -hmm. can be tough. And so it, uh, by looking at your HRV, um, and seeing where you're at, it, it, it helps you make smarter training decisions and, and making sure that you've got that, you know, you're not in the stress response period all the time and your body's able to relax because everybody knows, right? Like you don't get fitter from training. It's the recovery from training that makes you fitter. And so if your HRV is always locked in that stress response and you're not able to recover from your training, you're not actually getting anything out of your training. And so, um, but yeah, HRV is one of these things that, uh, um, I think that it's just going to continue to get more popular, but I think that if anybody's serious about their training, especially doing it long-term, you know, looking at one of these HRV solutions is a, uh, um, you know, something I'd, I'd highly, highly recommend. So, um, yeah, yeah you, you seem like you've got some experience with HRV. Yeah. I was, I wore a whoop strap for about two years. Yeah. Okay. And I found it to be a really useful training tool. I think HRV, I think it, I think you, you synopsized it perfectly. I think it's a really useful tool to teach people more about their own intuition. Ultimately, I think it's the journey for me, the ideal journey for my athletes is to use HRV as a training tool, as a learning tool, and then eventually put the sword down and walk away from it because that tool should be used to refine your own intuition. You should be able to get out of bed in the morning and do a body scan, an internal monitor an internal checklist of what's happening you know feel your heart rate feel your blood pressure feel how responsive you are to little things and understand innately okay today's a day where i could train pretty hard or Ooh, today's a day where i'm a little tired that's the ideal for me but to get there i think hrv is a really really useful tool because sometimes we have to see numbers to learn to process our own sensations to process our own what's happening in our body and that's unfortunately the fact that HRV is a good training tool and exists is a little bit of a sign of how disconnected so many people have become from their bodies. Oh, big time. Yeah, 100% right about the ultimate goal really being to not have to use the HRV uh, tool at all to know where you're at. And so, you know, it just becomes like some interesting data, more of just like a morning routine. But, mm -hmm. you know, I can sit down and tell you before I take it. Like, all right, man, like I'm probably going to be this and, you know, 90 plus percent of the time I am because like, uh, you know, you start to associate like same thing with heart rate, right? Like this is one of these things that, that uh, cracks me up is how much people focus on heart rate. And I guess you could also say the power meter is the same thing, right? And they're, they're so focused on it during training. I got to keep my power here and I got to keep my heart rate here. And it's like, okay, when no. you're racing, are you looking at those things? No. Okay. What are you going on? Feel. Okay, well, right. why are you not training that, right? Like there's, there's a total disconnect uh, between the way that most people train where they're so numbers oriented mm -hmm. and how you actually perform, which is more feeling oriented and using the numbers to understand, okay, if I'm feeling this way, this is probably what's going on and I can make some decisions, you know, with that knowledge. 
but you know, yeah, like being totally disconnected, you know, uh, without those numbers in your face, um, is not necessarily the goal. Like, yes, you're more informed than someone who doesn't use the numbers at all, but you're really not at the end of the journey yet. There's still a few more steps that we'd really like to take to realize our potential as human beings, which is to, you know, tap into our own inner wisdom and knowledge or whatever you want to call it, but it's there. The model I kind of have in my head is that we're, we're sort of triangulating between three points and those three points are heart rate, which is your body's response to exercise, response to load. It's how your body's reacting to whatever you're doing and all the stress summates. So that can be temperature, hydration, calories, uh, total number of hours you've been riding, you know, um, and load, of course, right? Amongst other things, humidity can do it. Even barometric pressure can influence people's heart rate. That's one corner of the triangle. The other corner is if you're using one, a power meter, that's your body's output. So it's the external load. It's the load you're generating and then measured externally. It's kind of the, the hard line. How much work are you actually doing? The third point of that triangle, which is arguably the most valuable is relative perceived exertion, internal tachometer. How do you feel? Because I can look at all the training data in the world on training peaks or today's plan or, or whatever software you're using. And I can see the heart rate, the rider's response, and I can see their power, their output. But until I have that third data point, which is their sensation, I don't really have a complete picture. And ultimately heart rate and power are really sounding boards for the athlete to refine their ability to understand what's inside. For me, athletic practice is about primarily two things. It's about connecting internally with my own body, expressing movement and connection with nature. That's one of the reasons, big reasons I ride a bike. Not every cyclist identifies with that. Probably more mountain bikers do than roadies. But for me, it's about connection with nature. And sometimes I'll go ride for two hours. I'll stop, get off my bike, take off most of my clothes or maybe occasionally all of them, do Tai Chi in the middle of the forest in the sun. Then I'll put my clothes back on and ride home. That's connection with nature. I know that's not the way most people ride their bikes, but that's my gig. But I've also been doing this a long time. So, but anyway, like, like I think those that triangle, the point I'm getting at is that we really, those two other data points, those two technological devices are really serving as sounding boards to refine what's happening inside, what's going on with my body, connection with body, finding that flow, that perfect movement, right? That's, for me, that's sort of the end goal. And competitive cycling can be a, a subclass of this whole triangular model. And you can emphasize certain aspects of that to, we'll say, maximize your capacity as a competitive athlete. Nothing wrong with that at all. And, and on that point, you mentioned, this is the third thing I took away from what you were saying earlier, is that you said elite sport is not necessarily healthy, right? And I think a lot of amateurs miss that point. I really think that people, we tend to glorify the professionals and, and I'm not saying that's unwarranted. Professional athletes are badasses. Like we all want to see, you know, super fast women rip down a downhill trail and do amazing things. I mean, who doesn't want to see that? That's super cool. We all want to see, you know, the Tour de France climbing a mountain at speeds that are unbelievable. Uh, hopefully naturally induced speed. <laughs> We all want to see, you know, people do 100 mile mountain bike races and annihilate themselves. Like that's cool. That's a neat thing to see or, or maybe the Colorado Trail or whatever they're doing, right? Those are amazing achievements. 
but they're by definition myopic. They're by definition singularly focused. And anytime you put all your effort into that arrow point of one direction, all energy pointing in one, one dream goal or objective, you by definition disregard the other aspects of your life that would normally be holistic. You disregard certain aspects of things. It's just a law of I don't know, we call it a law of focus, I suppose. It's like the more you point yourself in one direction, the more you're going to have to ignore other things that make you a well-rounded human and look after your health. So I think that's a great point. And I, I, I agree with you on that for sure that elite sport isn't necessarily something that all athletes, all amateurs should ne necessarily pedestalize. I don't know if that's a word. I think I just made that yeah, up. Yeah, no. No, I think it, uh, it's, um, and even just like the idea of racing in general, right? Like I think it, it's it's basic human psychology. It's, it's you come into a new tribe and what, you know, what are you going to do? I'm going to look around and figure out the norms and, and stuff. But among that, you're going to figure out like, okay, who who is, you know, looked up to in this environment, mm -hmm. right? Who is held up and, and to people, okay, and, and we naturally want to, Okay, well, that must be what I need to do if I want to be, you know, looked up to in this environment as well. And so a lot of times it is like the racers and, and you know, the pro riders that are, are held up in the media and all that stuff. And so the message is that, well, if you want to be, uh, you know, liked as a rider, then this is the pathway. And, and so racing becomes like, I don't even think that racing is a good idea for most riders, like not the way that they do it. Like if you want to do it, like to have some fun, that's great. But like, I think that most people miss the point of mountain biking um, and really riding in general, like riding should be a form of self-improvement, like that, that it should be a vehicle for self-improvement. And you, you can be faster on Strava. You can be faster in a race and not have actually improved as a person and not exact actually improved your health. Mm -hmm. And so like, to your point, like you can be myopic in what your, your goals are and miss the fact that you're not actually improving, right? Like the, the, the example, um, you know, I've heard a lot of times coaches who you've worked with really high level uh, athletes, especially Olympic athletes give is that, Hey man, you win the Olympic gold, but you got divorced and, and your kids won't talk to you. Like, was that worth it? Right? Like, so there's these, these, uh, these, these trade-offs, like you're saying that when you get so hyper-focused in one area, you may not actually be improving as a person. Mm. And I think that ultimately that's, that's the goal. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that you can't do it. Right. But I think that if you're a pro rider, there's, you know, it's a different thing though, than someone who's just a regular average everyday rider who's being told and given the message like, Hey man, if you want to like racing or this, like that is riding, right? Like that should be your focus. Like your Strava time should be your focus. Like that's the thing. And you know, or your enduro racing and stuff like that's the, you know, it, it's, it's funny. It's like, man, what, why? Like, you know, the, I'll be honest, like enduro racing cracks me up because it's like, you know, they're all like, oh, it's just like riding your bike. And it says, well, just go ride your bike. Like you can go to that same exact place any other weekend and ride the exact same thing with your friends and do it for free. Right. right? And so like, why, what is with the, again, like I understand like putting a date on a calendar to have that challenge. But I, I just, again, I think that a lot of riders get caught up in this mindset that they have to race and that racing is in, in training to be a racer is synonymous with being a rider. 
Mm. And I, I don't think that's the same thing. That's like saying that, you know, being a bodybuilder is synonymous with someone who works out with weights. It's like, man, you can work out with weights for a lot of different reasons. Bodybuilding may be one of them, right? We saw what happened in the strength training world when bodybuilding became synonymous with strength training. It's like, oh, you want to get better at your sport? You do uh, bodybuilding, three sets of 10 on the leg press, leg curl, and leg extension. Like that's how that became a, a training program given to cyclists was the bodybuilding influence or, you know, the influence that bodybuilding had on the strength training world at one time. And so, you know, we've, we've seen that there's problems with that. And so, oh, there's other ways we've got functional training now and all these other things. So we've moved forward. So, you know, but it, I think the same thing, you know, can happen with, with racing where people start to think that racing is synonymous with riding and they're not, they're not, they're not the same thing. Racing is a form of riding, but man, you can be a rider and never race and, 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 and like that, and be great, like have fun, like do it for your own reasons. So, um, but yeah, man, that's, I, I feel that a lot of riders miss that point. Like, I, I will say like, that's one of the reasons I enjoy jujitsu so much. Cause it's baked into it. Like, you know, there's no illusions. Like everyone's going to get their butt kicked when they first get on the mat. It doesn't matter who you are, how big you are, what your background is. If you haven't grappled before, you're going to get smashed. And so any illusions of you being great are, 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 are dashed. And so the whole thing becomes about self-improvement and it's that journey, you know, your mindset, your nutrition, you know, everything you do, it, it, it's baked into the culture because you know, you're going to show up on, you know, a couple nights a week and you're going to have to freaking go to battle with some killers and, you know, and there's no hiding on the mat, man. You can't, you can't, you know, tell people like you're a great writer and look the part when you're not really man, you know? And so it's, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I enjoy that mindset. It's a martial arts mindset is really what it boils down to. Like it, all martial arts really kind of have that, that self-improvement aspect baked in. But I think that, that riding really misses, like I have a couple articles on my website, like things I, you know, wish mountain biking would learn from Brazilian jiu-jitsu or I forget what the exact title is, but there's things that, that cycling could learn from looking at, you know, some martial arts and like, how do we in, encourage people to do this for different reasons other than just racing? You know, how do we give them the mindset to do this for the long haul? Like, again, we give people the impression that, man, if you're not, you know, pretty fast after six months to a year, you suck. Right. And in jujitsu, it's like, no, 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 dude, you're going to suck for like three or four years. Like, honestly, I, I've, I've noticed the same parallel really with riding too. Like, your most riders are not going to be very good for the first probably like three to four years. It's going to take you about three to four years of riding and training consistently to get to where you feel pretty confident in most situations. And, but if you have this impression that like, man, I, I'm, I've been riding for a year and I'm not getting faster and all this stuff. And you start getting frustrated. The odds of you quitting are way higher. So, you know, one of the things that you do in, in martial arts and jujitsu is you start letting people know right off the bat early, like, hey, buddy, it's okay to suck. We've all sucked. It's the process. Just buckle down. It's going to take you years to figure this out. And know what? That's okay. And it takes so much mental pressure off of people to just relax and enjoy the process rather than get all like hyped up on like, oh my God, you know, my Strava times, my, my, you know, functional power threshold, my, you know, whatever, insert whatever manic thing that drives people crazy that really keeps them from keep, you know, having the view that they need to achieve the goals that they're looking to achieve. But, uh, but anyways, man, yeah, no, I, uh, I agree. It, it, it can get confusing for people as far as like what to focus on. 
um, when it comes to, you know, pro riders and, and the information you can get from them. That's an excellent point that I think a lot of riders would benefit from sort of truly embracing the beginner's mind, which means same thing when you walk through, you know, the door of the, the dojo or the jujitsu training center, it's like, man, I've never done this before. So it's only my ego that's going to tell me that I need to be good at it out of the blocks. It's only my ego that's going to be upset or feel embarrassed if I get my ass kicked for the first month or three months or 12 months. And that's exactly what it is. Ego. I mean, yeah, like everybody has that little fantasy somehow that they're going to be the one in a billion and they walk through the door for the first time and they throw everybody on the mat and smash everybody else. Or they and they win their first five bike races easily solo because they just annihilate the field and they're, they turn out to be Lance or, you know, whoever. Um, the outliers outlier. Yeah. It's not that those people don't ever exist. Right. But they're the outliers outlier. And we always harbor those fantasies. It's, it's funny. I recently got into competitive shooting and I went out to my first like steel challenge match. And dude, it's, it's funny you say that. Cause I had the same exact thing, man. At the end of the day, my wife's like, how'd it go? I was like, it went pretty good, but I'm definitely not, you know, going to fulfill this little fantasy I had of walking out there and just being great at it right off the bat. So Right. I just got to buckle down for the process of getting better. You know, this isn't the, the thing. So it's funny you mentioned that because that was just like a couple weekends ago, but we all have it. But like acknowledging it helps you be like, okay, man, that, yes, that is what I'm thinking. And so when I'm feeling frustrated or, or whatever, or trying to make excuses, like my sights are off to the left, like, no, they're not. You just suck, dude. You just start learning. Yeah, exactly. And it's okay to learn. It's okay to learn, but it's well, the, uh, you know, I think with cycling too, one of the problems though is like the culture because it is so, you know, um, you know, it, it does appeal to the engineering mind. So, Hey, if there's a problem, I can find the solution to it. And yeah. a lot of times that solution involves technology. So, you know, if you're struggling to make it up that climb, there's different tires, there's different tire pressures, there's a different frame geometry, there's a different, I mean, there are a million excuses that yeah. you can use technology for to not acknowledge like, man, maybe it's just the process. Maybe you just need to get better. And, I, and so um, I think that's one of the reasons that people get put on clipless pedals so quickly, because as a culture cycling, we don't let people struggle. You know, if you, if you see someone struggle, you're, the well-meaning intention is to try and help them. And, and, the, and there's certain ways that we try and help new riders. Like, hey, man, you know, you'd be more efficient if you're on clipless pedals. You know, you'd have an easier time climbing if you were on clipless pedals. Instead of just telling them, like, you know what, man, it's probably going to take you a while to get your pedal stroke figured out. Like, it's okay, though. Like, just, you know, you're, it's going to take you a little while to figure out how to keep your weight distributed on climbs. You know, all of these things are skills that you have to learn that have nothing to do with the technology. But then you take someone and you put them in like clipless pedals and now their focus becomes the, the, the technology. Learning to use the technology becomes the focus, not continuing the process of learning how to be a rider. And, you know, physically, you know, how does that feel? Like we were talking, like I just mentioned, like, how do I distribute my weight on climbs? How do I hold myself in these positions. It's, it's way harder for you to focus on those things when your focus is on the technology and trying to like, okay, you know, can I get clipped out here? Do I need to pre unclip here? You know, all, you know, all of these things that, um, you know, every rider who's ever rode with clipless pedals at some point has experienced. And a lot of people still experience. It's just, uh, 
I, you know, I, I compare it to the emperor's new clothes, you know, that little, the, the children's tell where everybody thinks the emperor is naked, but nobody says anything because they think they're the only one who sees it. Yeah. I think the whole thing about people really not enjoying their experience on cloakless pedals is like emperor's new clothes. Uh, everybody has it. Everybody, you know, has had that experience, but they think they're the only one, you know, that's kind of the, the impression is that like, oh, you just got to toughen up. You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I just dealt with it. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You're, you're, you, you had the same thing you had to work through. Right. But like if, if people, I think that's one of the reasons that like flat pedals are, have kind of regained some ground over the last few years, especially in the mountain biking world is, you know, you know, I'll toot my own horn a little bit. I think the flat pedal revolution manifesto, which I put out, I don't even know how long it's been, man. It's been a long time since I put that thing out, but you know, for years before that I was championing flat pedals because Again, the story, this is funny, man. The, the, the rumor on the internet, it's funny. Like, Bike James, you know, he's this, dude, he's this guy that exists on the internet. I read all this stuff about Bike James. And I'm like, I don't know what, what the hell happened there, you know? Bike James, <laughs> like, fell over at a stop sign on his clipless pedals and then went off, pissed off, right. looking to, to disprove clipless pedals so that I never had to use them and I could just stick with flats. That's the, that's the, the story that I've read in more than one uh, account of how bike James got to this point. You know, I don't know, maybe bike James got that place that way. James Wilson, me, what happened was I was, I did have the proverbial fall over to stop sign moment where I was, you know, I, I spent time trying to learn how to ride clipless pedals. And then, and I fell over to stop sign and I was like, dude, I would have died if this was on the trail. So I'm having more fun on my flats. I know that I can at least get as good as this other guy that I was riding with who was on flats before I needed to get to clipless pedals. And I wasn't there yet. So I'm like, you know what? I'll just go to flats. And when I get to the point where I know that it's, it's my, you know, my pedals that are holding me back, not my lack of skill, not my lack of fitness, then, then I'll look at switching. So that was, that, that's how I approached it. And, you know, I never really reached that day, but I always thought that I was giving something up, right? Like I, I believe like everyone else pushing, pulling all this efficiency stuff. Just for me, it was a trade-off I was willing to make. And so what, what happened was when I was working uh, actually with the Yeti World Cup team, uh, when I was coaching Aaron Gwynn, I decided to start looking into the science behind clipless pedals because, you know, I, I'm working with these riders who are using clipless pedals. As a strength coach, I wanted to see, well, is there something that I can do with my programs to help enhance what clipless pedals are doing? How exactly are they working? How exactly are they more efficient? How exactly are, are they creating more power? Mm -hmm. So then I can focus my training program on these things. And everyone acts like you can just throw a stick and hit five studies that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that clipless pedals are better and that they produce more power and more efficiency and all this stuff. And man, you start looking and it's like, wait a minute, where are the studies? Like, I can't find any studies that actually back up these things that I'm expecting to find. What's going on here? And then I started, you know, putting feelers out and I had people send me studies that, that were pointing in the opposite direction. You know, the, 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 the more known course studies that showed that pulling up on the backstroke was actually less efficient and, and less powerful than simply driving hard with the lead leg and letting the trail leg do its thing. Right. And, and so like these uh, the science that I did come across pointed in the opposite direction of what we would all been told as the industry, like that famous little chart the circle chart that, you know, has the leg and it shows, you know, this muscle is activated here and this muscle activated here and this muscle activated here and here. That's yeah. all theory. It's never like if you look at an EMG reading of the pedal stroke, it looks nothing like that. 
but that's still in textbooks. Like that's still used in coaching programs. It's insane. It's been disproven by science several times, but it is still this like thing that people take as a given in the cycling world. And so I, uh, because it just, I don't know, I don't like people lying. And so I'm trying to like get the truth out there. I started kind of championing flat pedals, um, trying to get this information out there. And man, I took a beating. I mean, I've definitely lost clients. I have lost, you know, professional opportunities, money. Uh, I am, you know, the guy that walks into the party and tells everybody their clipless pedal God is dead is not the popular guy at the party. Okay. And so like, but that's fine. I just, it, I, I felt like telling the truth was more important than, than just, you know, keeping the status quo. And so, you know, I put the flat pedal revolution manifesto out, you know, several years ago, but like, you know, that conversation and everything is definitely, um, you know, changed as far as like the value of flat pedals and especially learning as a new rider. And I think it's much more acceptable now for people to encourage new riders to stick to flat pedals for a period of time and learn how to ride on flats. When again, that was not the norm, man. I got, I got, Hey man, you got to learn how to use these things. May as well start right now. I mean, that was the story I got when I bought my first mountain bike and, you know, countless riders too had heard that as well. And so, um, so anyways, the, uh, I forget exactly how I got started on this, but that is a, a conversation that has changed um, you know, when it comes to equipment and stuff and the value of that equipment for, mm-hmm. for riders and their improvement. But, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, there you go. I think it is something that these, these things can change with, uh, time and, and information, you know, like we're trying to get out there and hopefully some of these other training aspects and things like that can change as well. But, uh, yeah, but yeah there you go. Flat pedals, baby. <laughs> well, you know, I just want to say, anyone who's really speaking their truth and isn't afraid to go against the norm, man, when it's, when, when, you know, when your soul's telling you like, this is, this is what my message is for the world. This is what I have to teach people. And you're not afraid to walk into that party and kill everyone's flat, you know, clip as pedal gods, like good for you. And the fact that you lost clients, the fact that you lost financial opportunity, professional, you know, opportunities to teach other people and stuff over this disagreement is a testament to the fact that you were gaining ground. I would argue that's what demonstrates that you were rototilling belief systems. You were challenging people's ways of thinking. And I'm not saying that every time you challenge someone's way of thinking, that in itself justifies your line of thought and that you are correct. Of course, that's not true. We can say all kinds of ridiculous things. Fine line, man. It's really tough. Yeah, yeah. But... I, I happen to agree with a lot of your philosophies on flat pedals. And I think in particular, the catalyst pedal, you know, I don't want to, I want to also make sure we spend time, take time to address a little more stuff about strength and conditioning. But since we're on the catalyst pedal, let's, let's keep going with that. Specifically a discussion around flat pedals. Look, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I referenced the study you're talking about in regards to pulling up on the backside of the stroke. I reference that in discussions with my clients all the time when I'm doing fitting. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to straight up just tell everybody right now to make this crystal clear. If you've listened to my other two podcasts I've done on how to pedal a bike, 101 and 102, which is over four hours worth of me just rambling. If you're pulling up on the backside of the stroke, in particular at nine o'clock, or if you're driving up at 10, 11, and 12, trying to use Iliacus, Soaz, and Rec Femme to drive and unweight your leg and pull up, you are doing it wrong. 
I'm just gonna say that point blank straight up. You're, you're not increasing your efficiency. At the very best case, you're keeping it the same, but at the expense of your downstroke, your power phase. But most people get less efficient. The stuff that won't be borne out in all the double blind studies is that you're probably, there's a really high probability you're gonna pull up harder on one side than the other. And you're gonna shorten and strengthen one psoas more than the other. The psoas is the deepest muscle in the body. It's the muscle of the soul. There's a lot of emotion that gets tied into psoas. So psoas muscles are problematic to begin with, but when you overuse it in endurance exercise, you're just adding you know, weight onto the problem pile. And then on top of that, consider that the psoas is pound for pound, it's a very strong muscle, but it's only about, take three fingers and kind of pinch them together. That's about the thickness of your psoas, but it's probably about almost 30 centimeters long in irrelevant units, that's 18 inches. That's a long skinny muscle. So when a really long skinny strong muscle that passes through the center of the body goes past several organs and past the pelvis and is attached to something that moves a lot, your femur, and something else that moves a lot, your lumbar spine, it's a recipe for things to get all screwed up. And that's why therapists try to work on psoas problems all the time. Also, the psoas isn't like your VMO, your your medial quad, that big, you know, kind of grapefruit looking thing right next to your knee. A massage therapist can go in there and just crank on that thing when that thing's tight or has problems. Psoas, not so much. You got all kinds of guts in the way and viscera and pelvic bones and and such. So it's a lot harder to get to a psoas. So it's a hard muscle to treat, right? So for all these reasons, and actually a whole lot more that I won't go into, pulling up on the backside of the stroke is not the best way to pedal a bike. We are humans, we're meant to push down. We have all this muscle made to push to generate downforce. We are engineered or evolved, depending on how you wanna look at it, to negotiate the face of the earth and to resist the force of gravity. And that means pushing down against the surface of the earth. So cycling is a refined form of that basic motion. So, yeah. When we, I've heard you mention this, James, one of your hypotheses, I'll say, and correct me if I'm misquoting you or, or twisting one of your ideas around, is that basically one of the reasons flat pedals are so effective is because when people use traditional cycling shoes with a stiff sole and they use a clipless pedal, it changes the relationship of the foot to the pedal in a way that allows for not optimal force distribution and proprioceptive, we'll say clarity. Is that a fair way to describe things? Yeah, no, I was I was really influenced by the book Born to Run. Um, yeah. You know, it's just part of my strength training background. I really got into the barefoot training, barefoot running thing. You know, I suffered from uh, knee and foot problems when I ran track and cross country. And I remember them getting ready to fit me with orthotics. So like I had, you know, when I read that book, it was like, oh, you know, I'd, I'd actually experienced what he was talking about as far as like, oh, these big, overly built, overly cushioned shoes uh, were, were causing the problem. And so if I get into the barefoot training and barefoot running thing, that'll go away. And, and so like my training facility that, you know, I had for six years in Grand Junction, like we were a barefoot training facility. Like we encourage you to come in and work out barefoot or at least minimalist shoes. Like, you know, we would not allow those big bulky shoes in the gym uh, to work out in. And so it's just part of my, um, you know, my core philosophy. And so I, but I remember listening to that. I, I didn't read, I listened to it as a audio book on a drive out to, uh, to and from California. But um, I remember listening to it 
and thinking like, man, if running shoes are jacking up our feet and lower body with how they're, with the unnatural interface they're creating, what on earth are clothless pedals doing to people's feet? Because that is a super unnatural interface for your, your uh, mm-hmm. foot to, to have with something, with the, you know, trying to apply pressure into something. And so I actually did a, a little research and there, I, you know, didn't find much, but like one of the studies I found, um, you know, cyclists uh, that were studied had like 80 plus 85% of them had some sort of overuse injury uh, within their career. Like it was as high, if not higher than running. Right. And again, like running was the, the you were able to point to like, Hey, this is why all these injuries are because of the foot. And so that was definitely one of my, my thought processes behind flat pedals was well, flat pedals at least allow a more natural interface with the, with the bike and with the pedal than clipless pedals do. And so, you know, even before I, I invented the clipless or the, the catalyst pedal, um, I had had many riders who had, you know, were one of the guys was literally ready to quit riding. I mean, this guy rode, it was part of his soul and he hurt so bad. And he had done all the bike fits, all the different shoes, all the different things, but he was, you know, wearing clipless pedals. And I told him, man, you know, just switch to flats, just give it a shot. You have nothing to lose. And he did. And his pain, uh, for the most part, went away. I mean, just, you know, giant change pretty quickly. You know, so now he's a huge flat pedal uh, advocate. But um, there's a lot of people out there that have experienced this, that when they switch from clipless pedals to flats, that a lot of these cycling-related aches and pains that they've had uh, either go away or get a lot less. And, you know, that is actually the taking that a step further was my idea for the catalyst pedal because I realized that even flat pedals don't create a natural interface for your foot with the pedal. And the, the problem is, is that when people look at riding a bike and they go, Oh, that looks like running or jumping. And when you run or jump, you want to drive through the ball of your foot. But the problem is, is that when you're on your bike, your your foot's not coming off the pedal. Right. So you're not propelling your center of gravity through space. The bike is carrying your center of gravity through space. So it's more like surfing or skateboarding or skiing right. or something like right. that. Right. It's not triple extension. Yes, exactly. It's not triple extension. Triple extension is only when you're projecting your center of gravity off of its base of support. Right. So you need your feet to break contact with the ground. So the context of how your feet of this is very important because your, your lower leg acts very differently between these two contexts. This is why when you're in the gym, no one tells you to well drive up on the, the ball of your foot when you're doing lunges and squats and deadlifts, because you know, when you run and jump, that's how you do it. So that's the most powerful way to lift weights. No one does that because we know you blow knees out and hurt people doing that. And, yeah. and the reason is, is that when your foot is not coming off of what it's in contact with, it wants two pressure points to create stability and, and apply pressure into the, uh, into what it's on. And so because the, the most flat pedals, you know, pretty much everyone but the catalyst pedal is made from this assumption that you only need to stabilize the ball of the foot and create one pressure point. It's really not a foot position. It's a pressure point system, right? It's one pressure point versus two pressure points. And your body is designed to use two pressure points in, the, in that context. And so when you've got a single pressure point, it creates all sorts of problems. So, you know, you're, you're not able to recruit the hips as effectively. Your uh, calf and Achilles tendon is going to have to create, uh, you know, get tighter because something has to stabilize your heel. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so you also, when you have a rotating platform that's centered or a platform that's centered on a rotating axis from an engineering standpoint, it makes no sense to try to use one pressure point to apply pressure into that rotating platform. You have to get it perfectly centered and it can't deviate at all. Any deviation off of center is going to result in that platform tipping. And so most riders can't get their foot perfectly centered. It's too uncomfortable. So almost all riders will have a little bit of offset forward. And this is why you see the toes tipping down when people are pedaling really hard because this is uneven force going into the pedal, that platform, and it's rotating the platform forward. Well, one answer to that problem, because if you're not, you know, if you're on flats, your foot can come off of that. Or you have to think about how you're pedaling and and, and moderate your uh, force to keep it from, you know, being so much that it tips your foot off. Mm. Well, one answer to that is to attach your foot to the pedal. Okay, if I attach my foot to the pedal, it will take care of that problem. Now I can pedal as hard as I want. I don't have to worry about my foot coming off the pedal. Another answer to the problem is to stabilize the energy that's going into the platform so you don't have that tipping in the first place. And that's where putting two pressure points, one on each end of the platform, is the better, more efficient way to apply force into a rotating platform like that, i.e. a pedal, even a clipless pedal, even the smallest pedal clipless pedal is a platform that you are standing on that's rotating on a centered axis or centered on a rotating axis. And so like there, there's another way to solve that problem. And that is to create the two pressure point platform. And that's what the catalyst pedal does. And so again, it just, it's just an extension of this look at how is the human body designed to move? Now, how do we apply this to the bike? And while that sounds self-evident and, and like, well, duh, that is not the approach the vast majority of the cycling world and cycling coaches take. They have these preformed theories on how you want to power the bike, and then you're going to force the body to adapt to these theories. And that's where the whole pushing and pulling thing came from. Mm. And so, you know, again, if I'm designing a machine from scratch, I will have it push and pull, right? But the human body is not a machine di- designed from scratch. We have certain ways that we optimally move. And so we have to learn how do we apply these ways to the bike instead of these, you know, cockamamie theories uh, of how would a machine power the bike. And then, you know, and so again, like this is why I'm a big advocate for standing pedaling because when you stand up a lot, a bunch of good things happen when, when you're sitting down, you're in the adult fetal position, right? Like if, if sitting's the new smoking, like what is a seated pedaling? Like, you know, bong hits a crack more sitting. Yeah. So it's not good for you, man, to put a bunch of tension on your system when you're sitting down, you know, sitting down to recover is fine. This is where people get me a little confused. They're like, Oh, you just stand up all the time. It's like, no, 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 no. I sit down a lot, but I sit down when it's a low tension, easy situation to recover. As soon as it's hard and I have to start applying tension through the system, I'm going to stand up because one, I get my, uh, my hips and shoulders aligned better. My core's in a better position. I'm able to get full knee extension and I have pressure on the foot. And what this does for the knee is you get a co-contraction between the quad and the hamstring that stabilizes the knee joint as your hip sweeps the foot through the, the end of the pedal stroke. And so what people don't realize is when you're sitting down, you are running a crap ton of force through your knee without it ever being stable, like truly stable, like it's designed to be. And so, you know, people pay all this money for bike fits to get their knee in just the right position Man, you stand up, boom, knees in the right position. And so learning how to stand up is, is a big skill. But again, if you have tiny pedals, 
so that when you stand up, you either have a lot of pressure in one place, like on clipless pedals, which is very uncomfortable, or you have this kind of unstable platform that, that most, you know, all the other flat pedals create, where when you stand up and you're creating pressure and force in the platform, it's wanting to roll on you, then instinctively you're not going to want to stand up because the experience is different. Like we were talking about earlier, right? Like the context of that experience sucks. Okay. But the context of standing up when your foot is stabilized properly is completely different. And now all of a sudden you can, you can ride in a way that you couldn't before because mm -hmm. your foot is stabilized properly. And so now you're able as an extension, able to stand up, which puts your body in a much healthier, much more natural position for you to move from uh, on the bike to create power and movement. And then you sit down to recover and then you stand up to go hard the next time. But this okay. culture of just sitting and, and grinding your way through everything and only standing up when you absolutely have to is, uh, is really hurting a lot of riders and, and also holding back their performance as well. So, hmm. uh, so yeah, man, it's uh, definitely part of the philosophy and, and has led me in a couple different directions with it. Right. Right. Okay. So, I just want to rewind briefly and make sure that my audience understands the basic design of the catalyst pedal because you're the inventor and you've got this thing clearly in your mind you've got a lot of experience with it but not everyone will quite know what you're talking about so the the essence of the catalyst is it's a very long pedal right it's a much longer platform than you would have even with the biggest flat pedals you've seen think about big fat flat pedals that are you've seen on downhill bikes or or maybe just some enduro bikes possibly Catalyst pedal is what, four and a half inches long? It's five inches of contact space. So the idea is that you've got this long platform and at the front of the pedal, you're gonna have contact under the metatarsal heads or the ball of the foot. And at the rear of the pedal, you're gonna have at least the first part of the calcaneus on that pedal. So your entire arch is suspended over that flat platform. Is that a fair description? Yes, so, yeah. And stabilize the arch. Yeah, stabilize the arch. So it's a really simple concept, which is based on, I think, the idea that, okay, when you go to the gym, you can you can squat and deadlift barefoot. And if you have good foot mechanics, good basic understanding of how to properly attention, maybe organize the movement a bit, to borrow Kelly Starrett's terminology, to apply a subtle external rotation to the femurs and the hip sockets, for example, so that you're not pronating excessively during your heavy lifts. Some pronation and some supination are natural and part of all movement. So we're not demonizing pronation, but excessive pronation is what can trash knees, trashes backs. So when you push down on the floor during your heavy lift, when you walk and run on the surface of the earth, it's primarily a flat surface. Unless you're running on a trail, it's basically flat. And this is how the human foot really should air quotes function it should be able to provide a stable base of support for you to drive load into the ground whether you're lifting an object or squatting so if we break down our cycling into one of our paul check talks about all sports being able to be reduced into six basic movement patterns right hip hinge right or you could also call that a deadlift fundamentally or really it's a good morning technically right a squat, a lunge, a push, a pull, and a twist. That's the six primary movement patterns that we have. All sports can be reduced to these movement patterns in different forms, even complex movements like golf or tennis or surfing. They're all fundamentally, you can break them down to these movements. What is cycling? First of all, cycling is a hip hinge. It's a static hip hinge. So if you can't 
do a good hip hinge in the gym. If you're assessed by a trainer and your hip hinge is poor, that's 101, man. You're not going to ride a bike well without a good hip hinge. Secondly, it's a series of lunges in that static hip hinge position. Third, it's a pull. When you stand up and pull either on the contralateral or ipsilateral arm, that's fancy speak for same same side of arm or opposite side arm, depending on how hard you're pulling on the bars, what your cadence is, what the torque is, the grade, etc. That's your third movement pattern is a pull. There's also a static push or in mountain biking when you're driving the bike, for example, to pump going down a grade to gain free speed, that's a pump, right? When you're stabilizing the bars on a rocky descent or you're going off a drop, that's a pump, that's a push, excuse me, right? So we've got those four movement patterns. There's very small amounts of twisting in the torso. Again, when you're rocking the bike. Yeah, cornering twisting. Most people don't understand how to do it properly. Yes, but yes. If, yeah, twisting your hips. And, and you can also put uh, like resisting rotation as part of twisting. Yep. And so there's a lot of that on a bike where you're pedaling. And so you're trying to resist the rotation through the hips and stuff. Well, it's just eccentric twisting fundamentally, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I think, um, yeah, but to your point, like even, even uh, a movement like twisting uh, is still present in, uh, in mountain biking. And For so sure. these basic movement patterns are present in pretty much all of the, all sports and, and things that we do. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, anyways, I just wanted to, yeah, yeah, no, agreed. So, so when we're talking about this catalyst pedal, what we're saying is you get this stable platform to drive down in the power phase of the stroke, which I define as from 12 o'clock to six o'clock. So what that's when the crank is vertical to when the crank is horizontal. And James, you mentioned that there are a couple different ways to solve that problem. And the old school way is to put the axis of rotation or the pedal axle near the ball of the foot. And that makes that system inherently unstable. And I agree with that. The old school solution is use toe clips to prevent your foot from sliding off and then use a rigid platform, turn the shoe into a lever. That's where the origin of the road shoe came, which is started out as a really stiff piece of leather, then became thermoplastic and then became carbon fiber. And since more is always better, stiffer means more power and more air quotes efficiency, which probably I'd be hard pressed to find any science that shows that. I'm sure maybe you've looked more than I have, but no, I think that's part of the origin of the problem is that what we've done is bastardized pedaling into something that here's the issue that I have is what are you doing when you ride in a rigid shoe? You are basically fundamentally, you're making certain muscle groups more durable, specifically all the muscles in the lower extremity from the hips down, including glutes, quads, hams, and calves. But when you use a rigid cycling shoe that with a clip and pedal, you are taking away the stress off of all the muscles in the arch, the foot, and the ankle. Yeah. So the and that affects problem, the rest of everything. Yeah. So the problem comes in the delta between the conditioning you're doing of all these muscles above that chain, that part of the chain, and then you're allowing the shoe and pedal and and rigid sole specifically. Fundamentally, what that is is a prosthetic device. And all prosthetic devices weaken the body by definition. Example, let's say you had a friend who gets in a car accident. They have a fender bender and they get whiplash. The doc, they go to the doctor. Doctor puts them in a neck brace. They wear the neck brace for three months. They take it off after three months. Are their neck muscles weaker or stronger after wearing a neck brace for three months? Obviously, they're weaker. 
because the device, the prosthetic device, held up their head and did the work of the muscles. So the muscles atrophied. Cycling shoes, stiff cycling shoes in conjunction with a clipless pedal are prosthetic devices. Every time you ride your bike in a rigid carbon shoe, especially a stiff one, your foot becomes weaker. Your arch becomes weaker. Both your, all three of your arches, transverse, lateral, and medial. The musculature that stabilizes the ankle and keeps you nearer to subtail or neutral under high load become weaker. So as cyclists, the more you ride your bike, the crappier your ankle stability becomes. This is why it's not uncommon to hear people who finish their road season and then they take two weeks off and then they go for a trail run and they do two things that are not optimal. One, they're used to doing six hour bike rides. So they go for a two hour trail run out of the blocks, not used to the plyometrics of bouncing, not used to the eccentric load and their ankle stability is crap because they've been riding around in road shoes all year. And guess what happens? Usually two things. One, they sprain an ankle and two, they can't walk for like a week afterwards because they're so sore. So I think, I'm not saying that road shoes are all garbage, but I think the problem is exacerbated by the really old hangover from crappy shoe design, which is when you have a rigid shoe, it has a large amount of heel lift and toe spring. And that toe spring and heel lift combine to make a really crude way to activate the windlass mechanism to try to give the arch some tension. So just so people know, the windlass mechanism is if you reach down to your barefoot right now and pull up on your big toe really hard, what that does is it puts tension on the arch of the foot. And that mechanism is activated when you run and walk because when you run and push off on the ball of the foot, the big toe goes into dorsiflexion or pops up like a dorsal fin on a shark and points up towards your shin and that activates that tension under the arch. And that mechanism is an important part of how we run and walk through the world. It helps signal the body to engage the glutes, hamstrings, quads in proper amplitude and timing so that when you run and walk, hopefully you can do that with some supple muscle and some efficiency. You're not just slapping the ground and hamstrings aren't turning on at the wrong time to prevent the quads from firing, etc. There's a natural rhythm to that. So cycling shoes who have a big toe spring or, um, or automatically engaged dorsiflexion of the toe or a big heel uh, rise or both lock your foot into this almost like a, it's like a V shape to be exaggerated. When you look at the shoe from the side, your heels raised up like a high heel shoe and your toes being pushed up in the front and adapting to that curve of the sole. There's no standardization for this in any industry. Basically shoe designers just put it in there now because it's the way cycling shoes have been made since 1901. And I, I'm convinced that a big confounding variable in this equation, when I'm really long way to make this point, James, is I think you're on to something for sure with this pedal. I've got a pair on my bike. I've used them. I think they work great with minimalist shoes. I think one of the confounding variables isn't only the clipless pedal and the small contact area that goes therein. I think it is how the foot engages with most modern shoes, either mountain bike racing shoes or road shoes. And all those curves screw up the proprioceptive contact. What we want ideally is a dead flat surface and nobody makes shoes like that. Almost nobody. It's a system like the clipless pedals are a system. Like you can't ride clipless pedals without also uh, riding clipless pedal shoes. I mean, you can, but it's, uh, it, it sucks. 
um, right. from what I've seen. So, you know, I've had a couple of people forget their shoes and just go for it on like, you know, regular shoes and, and they actually ride surprisingly well. They surprise themselves like, damn, I rode better than I thought I would on, you know, just my freaking flat, you know, my tennis shoes on these clipless pedals. And uh, but they didn't quite see the actual point, which is like, yeah, you can ride a lot better than you think without these magic um, pedals here. But um, the the shoes are a big part of it. And what's funny, man, is I didn't even really realize that the shoes are made like that. But what's what it, and this just points again to just a lot of misunderstandings, which is the press, the process that the foot goes through is what activates that that windless mechanism. It's not the position. Locking your foot in that position is not activating it. You're, 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 what you're doing is you're locking your foot in that position and then it's getting stiff. Yeah. And so you're not, you know, no matter how you're not able to create pressure, like when you're running or walking, you, you're, you're the, the, the contact with the ground, the, the pressure that happens with the ground and the, the process that your foot goes through is the combination of those two things that trigger the reflex action, right? It's not, it's not the position of the foot. And you can't, you, you, you can't mimic that or get that pressure like you need in a road bike shoe. So even locking someone's foot into that position is actually, in my opinion, making the situation worse Agreed. because you're getting even further away from how the foot is naturally supposed to work. Yeah. And so, yeah, man. And, and again, like one of the, you know, that is another thing. Like when your pedals are too small, your arch is destabilized. And I, that's really the reason for the flat, for the stiff shoes is, is, or stiff soles you know, all this other stuff that they tell you is, is, is nonsense. Like they don't, they, they don't really understand what, what is going on here. Well, you have an unstable arch. You have one end that's just flexing in space. Well, if I put a stiff sole shoe on, it helps to, to uh, mitigate that some. And so that's what you're seeing with a stiff sole shoe versus a softer sole shoe on a, on a regular clip or pedal system is the, it's the difference in how much flex you're getting from the arch. That's where all of the advantages quote unquote, that are coming from a stiff sole shoe. It's not levering or, or positioning for this mechanism or whatever it is. It's simply that. And so, but if you extend the, the pedal back so that it's supporting the back end of the arch, then you don't have to rely on the shoe to do it. And so now you're able, like you can lay down power and flip-flops on the catalyst pedal mm -hmm. because you're not relying on the, the, the shoe to stabilize the foot. And you have this completely... A stable platform that you're driving into so usually like you know riding townies and flip-flops is and standing up and pedaling hard feels like suicide for your toes right but like that was one of my big aha moments was when i jumped on the one of the prototypes for the catalyst and flip-flops and i was like dude like this is crazy like how hard i can pedal and just playing flip-flops and how stable i feel like the shoes have nothing to do with it anymore because your foot has a platform that it can interface with properly and you just let the foot do all the work and then you can wear a comfortable shoe uh that is good for your you know foot like a, a natural you know foot movement type style shoe so like personally i use uh the sense of motion shoes they're out of uh, montrose actually mm -hmm. they, they make a, a you know a, a natural you know foot style shoe and so i use their shoes as riding shoes that's the other thing you don't need a lot of sticky rubber like five tens in trouble if this uh, take, you know, people really start to get behind this style of pedal because when you don't have your foot, like trying to fly off the pedal from those unstable forces, you don't need super sticky rubber. Mm -hmm. And so you can't continue to just slap sticky rubber on the bottom of half ass shoes and sell a bunch of them because it's the stickiest rubber around. Like you don't need super sticky rubber when, it, when you're not trying to counteract that rotation or, or deal with that rotation there.
Mm. So, um, yeah, man, no, the shoes, the shoes and the pedals and just the whole system, um, is so unnatural and so bad for your, your body and your foot that, you know, you know, one of the main reasons that people, uh, buy the clip or, or, you know, I guess one of the biggest pieces of feedback that we get from people who use the catalyst pedal is how it takes away and reduces their pain. And, you know, again, even, even above and beyond, like what just switching to regular flats will do as far as like, man, low back pain, knee pain, ankle and foot pain, plantar fasciitis, all of these things that you're just told as a cyclist are just par for the course for riding. Turns out they're not, they're just a result of a crappy, uh, you know, foot position and foot stability because the pedals are too dang small. And so, you know, it has all of these detrimental effects on the body um, besides that. So, but yeah, man, to your point, the, the shoes play a big role in how your foot is going to function and just, you know, putting your foot in a stiff sole, that's like tramming it in some sort of position that creates stiffness. Like people stiffness is, um, like it's fake stability, right? Stability is something you should be able to turn on and off, right? Mm -hmm. Stiffness is just on and it never turns off. And so what happens is like when your body is experiencing a lot of stiffness well, or, or you know, creating tension. Tension is metabolically expensive. Yes. And so if you're constantly in the state of tension, your body's going to go, well, it's going to be metabolically cheaper for me to just kind of stay in this position, get stiff. And it, and it can seem like stability, but like you were saying, like once you get out of that context, now you start to try to run or you try to walk or you try to do something else. Now your foot is compromised because it's not, it, it doesn't have authentic stability. It has this fake ass stiffness in, in so that in that stiffness creates a lot of pain and a lot of problems, both in the foot and lower leg and further up the chain. But yeah, yeah man, like, you know, free your foot, free your mind, you know, that's what the, the catalyst pedal is about. But uh, yeah, to your point though, for people that haven't seen the pedal, it is five inches long from front to back, but it's no wider than a normal pedal. So right. when, when you stand on it, it disappears under your foot. And one of the problems that I had always had with the, the bigger flat pedals that they have out there is as they get longer, they get wider. Yeah. And so they'll be like four inches, you know, front to back and side to side or more. And you don't need side stability. One of the things people don't realize is when you take away the heel pressure point, the foot is trying to find some sort of stability. There is some stability on the outside edge of the foot as well. That is the, like the, 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 the pressure triangle that your foot can create. Mm -hmm. So your foot will naturally try to roll to that outside edge to try to gain a little purchase and a little stability from this bad position that it's in. And so people feel this and they go, oh, well, I need a wider pedal because I feel my foot wanting to roll off. Well, it's rolling off because it doesn't have a proper, you know, it's, it's not stabilized properly. So when you get the foot stabilized from front to back properly, it's not rolling out to the side anymore. And so this is why you don't need a wider pedal and you're able to keep the pedal relatively narrow so that you don't have to deal with, you know, increased risk of rock strikes and all this other stuff that goes along with, uh, you know, widening your pedal. But that was the idea behind the design is you, you, we need more length, not more width. Right. And everyone is just trying to go wider and longer, but no one's really doing it the right way because they're just doing it, not really knowing why they're doing it. And so, you know, there's a very specific purpose behind the design of the catalyst pedal. I didn't just go to one of the three manufacturers in China that make pedals and say, hey, I'll take that one. Let me put my logo on that one and hire a pro rider to tell everybody how cool we are and sell the same pedal that everyone else is selling, right? Because right? unfortunately, man, that's pretty much like, 
most of the pedals on the market, that's what's going on with them because they, they really don't have a core philosophy that drives their design. But, uh, you know, that's kind of what uh, the, the philosophy behind the design of the Catalyst pedal for sure is all about foot, man. All about giving the foot that, that the foot's an amazing, amazing part of our body if you just give it the right environment to thrive. And that's really what it's all about. Like I agree uh, on the your design point there too. It, when pedals get too wide, you just destroy rock clearance. It's amazing how fast it goes. You don't realize it until you have a pedal with no with reduced clearance until you're bashing stuff all over the place, right? But yeah, well, to, to your point too about body awareness, like we're naturally aware of the width of our foot. Yeah, and so we're not aware of things that extend out past our foot. And so, you know, you're trying to remain aware of them, but there's just a natural awareness that goes to having the edge of the foot and the edge of the pedal coincide with each other. So, and again, just for the record, people, uh, rock strikes, that's you and your bad pedaling technique, not the pedals. So stop trying to go to smaller pedals to make up for your crappy pedaling technique. Like <laughs> learn how to stand up, do a little track stand, ratchet pedal. Like there's techniques to, to making it through rock gardens and technical sections without bashing pedals, but just sitting and spinning at a high RPM and just praying to the mountain bike gods and trying to buy the smallest pedal you can to put the odds in your favor. You know, that's, that's not really a good long-term strategy, but, um, but yeah, so uh, just a little side note there, um, mm -hmm. pedal strikes are something that you can correct yourself. They're not really an equipment issue. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I hear you on that for sure. It's, you know, back to that concept of connection with nature, right? The whole point of riding a technical trail is to find your way through the rocks like water, you know, yeah, the flow. And that's part of that is pedal position and thinking about where you can ratchet and where you're going to apply power and where you're going to ninja around some rocks or do your maneuvers. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's just, that's been one of the, you know, the, the, the reasons that some riders have given like, Oh, you know, I like a really small pedal. That's why I like clipless pedals because, you know, they reduce my chance of hitting a rock or clipping a rock. And it's like, man, you know, yeah, you can have ones that are too big. Like I think, I think some of those oversized flats, like we were talking about, like they're too wide and yeah. like that is an equipment issue. Right. But if, 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 if it's within a, you know, certain context, um, it's not really an equipment issue as much as it is a technique issue. Yeah. And so, um, but yeah, like if you're switching from clipless pedals to the catalyst pedal, and you're used to just sitting and spinning at a high RPM and trying to like, you know, spin and pray as I call it. Um, then you, you, you may uh, experience a few more rock strikes, but if with practice and using the different techniques, especially being able to stand up more like the catalyst pedal allows, you'll find that you'll be able to uh, learn how to not have that happen. And so you're able to use the, the optimal equipment, uh, instead of trying to use it to cheat your spin and pray technique. Right, right. So one little observation I'll make about the catalyst that is, I'm thinking about doing a Colorado trail trip this summer and I was considering using the pedals for that trip with flat shoes, you know, just like Vivo barefoots or whatever, because there's gonna be quite a bit of hike and bike and stuff. But one little obstacle I've got in that path is that when you go from a four foot cleat position, you know, a traditional position, and I never recommend the axle straight under the ball of the foot, even in my road and track fits, we're talking anywhere from 10 to 20 mils behind the first metatarsal for most riders, depending on their bony geometry, their bony landmarks. Uh, even from that position to using a catalyst, which is fundamentally, it's basically you're moving to a midfoot cleat position, the axles pretty much not directly maybe, but close to under the talus. 
what you have to do is drop the saddle correspondingly quite a bit when you yeah, change yeah. that because you're reducing the length of the third lever. There are three levers we use to apply leverage in cycling to the pedals, the femur, the tibia, tib fib, or upper leg, lower leg, and the length of the foot. And the lever of the length of the foot is determined by where you put that axle under the foot. So as we move the axle back, that lever gets shorter. In order to compensate for that, we have to lower the saddle. Well, in my position, my situation, I'm a guy who's ridden on the road forever. You know, I've got a really long cockpit on my road bike. I'm a trackie. I've been riding, you know, with that horizontalized torso for my whole career. So relative to most mountain bikers, I still sit probably with a longer cockpit. And at the moment, I've got quite a pile of Trek bikes in my garage. I work with them and I work with Travis on some test program stuff. I'm usually riding a large in most of their frames. I'm 5'9", you know, 176 centimeters for reference. So, but I ride with a very long extended spine. So I need a longer cockpit than most mountain bikers for sure. I also need a lower bar than most cross country bikes. I'm on the edge with a 29er or like I have a stash, you know, that's a 29 plus bike. It's got a 3.0 tire. So I'm constantly finding ways to try to get my bars low enough so that when I'm on a flowy fast trail and I need to apply pressure to that inside bar and increase the lean angle of my mountain bike relative to my body angle and drive that bike through and really engage that tread into the trail, the bars have to be low enough for me to instinctively want to do that. And I think some of that is because I've been riding road and track for 35 years with a really horizontal torso. So my, the point I'm getting at is if I lower my saddle on my bike to move to a midfoot cleat position, I also want to lower my bars. But on many bikes, I cannot lower my bars. On a couple of my, my cross-country bikes right now, I've already got a negative 20 degree, you know, like a flat force stem with a zero rise bar. And I'm perfectly happy there, even on steep terrain, technical terrain, it works well for me. Never have a problem over drops. I'm always just mining my technique and make sure I'm down and back enough so that I'm not doing an ass over tea kettle kind of maneuver. And that's what I found has worked for me. So one hiccup for me is if I change to those flat pedals, my saddle's going down and my bars are staying where they are and I'm losing some of that. I haven't played with that extensively in actual trail riding conditions. And I'm just talking out loud for someone who's taller than me, it won't be an issue because they can just drop their bars in the shadow at the same time. But for anyone under about 175 centimeters, if you're on a, a medium frame or smaller, this is going to be, it's the same problem when you use midfoot cleat position on road bikes. Road bikes aren't made for that low of a saddle. For people who do brevets and crazy long road races, sometimes they change to midfoot cleat position. There's that company out of Switzerland that makes road shoes with a midfoot cleat position drilled. It's called bio Mac, I believe, you know, Don Lampson makes shoes with midfoot, not to get too far down a rabbit hole, but a lot of people have done it. But the problem is how do you get your bars low enough? So I'm not asking you to have a solution to that. I know you don't make stems, no. but well, no, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Uh, that only matters when you're sitting in the seat. Correct. And I, and I have unpacked some of your philosophies and a bit of your thoughts on seated versus standing riding and and I totally hear you, you know, me coming from more of a roadie side background, obviously I spend more time in the saddle. I'm not opposed to standing riding at all. I certainly do a fair amount of it on my mountain bike, but when I'm doing a, a five hour mountain bike ride, it's gonna be a fair amount of saddle time in there. And I do, you know, on the front range here in Colorado, I've got mountain bike rides where you're climbing for an hour to get to trails. I'm not going to yeah. stand for an hour continuously. See, again, that's where, where I think people really misunderstand what I'm, what I'm saying as far as like, you just have an internal tension meter. 
right? And again, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning about just having that, that, that body awareness. And so there's an internal tension meter and that thing is going to change based on, you know, different factors, right? Like how fit you're feeling that day, your fitness level, the weight of the bike, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that, that, that are factors there, but whatever that is, like, there's a point where you are like, okay, I'm starting to get into high tension mode. I'm no longer in low tension mode. I'm in high tension mode. I'm having to create a bit of tension here to keep things going. High tension equals standing up. Anything that's not high tension, sitting down is fine. And so like on a five hour bike ride, even like an hour long climb, it, it is, it's an interplay between these internal tension levels. Cause even then, like, a, a, you know, most climbs are not just a steady thing for the whole hour right? They're, they're these undulating, like, you know, easier, harder. So it's like, when it's a little harder, you're standing up. When it's a little easier, you're sitting down, standing up, sitting down, right? And so, but when you're descending, right? So like when you're talking about cornering, like you can't corner properly if, you're, if your butt's on the seat. So right. like that's, that, you know, that's kind of irrelevant as far as like, you know, in fact, lowering your bars might actually make cornering uh, more difficult. And, and what some people have actually found one of the pieces of feedback that we get quite often is that people feel like they're actually able, they're more stable and they're able to corner better when they are sitting down because they've, their center of gravity is in closer to the bike center of gravity. And right. so you've created a more stable position for, for your body overall. But mm -hmm. when you stand up, like, you know, all of these, you know, that, that doesn't matter as much. And so the more, and, and where you're at in low tension mode, like, you know, when you're laying tension on your body in that mode, it doesn't matter as much. Like that's not high performance, right? So I, I got this little quadrant, you got standing, you got seated, you got high tension, you got low tension. Each one of these quadrants has a purpose, right? So like high tension standing, man, that's like your fun, high performance, man. That's where like, yeah, buddy, this is, you know, we're getting it either hard climbs or like hard descents. Like this is the performance quadrant, right? So standing low tension, this is like the flow and, and kind of free speed quadrant. People don't realize too, like just because it's, it's easy right now, doesn't mean you got to sit down and spin, stand up, pump this, roll that, like look for all the free speed that the trail has to offer. Okay. Right. Seated low tension. That's great for recovery. Okay. But then you've got seated high tension, man, that right there is crap for the body. It is just bad for you in every single way and should be avoided like the plague. It's not saying that you never got to go there. It's just you are understanding that, man, this is not good for me. Like I am laying a lot of tension on my body in a compromised position. And so, you know, I'm doing it for, you know, whatever, but that can't be a cornerstone of your riding and it not have like, you know, long-term effects in some ways. And so, and you also ride faster, the more like, you know, pro like good riders aren't better and they stand up more good riders are faster because they stand up more, right? Like you watch, you, you know, even pro riders, even, you know, at all levels in every discipline, they will stand up and lay down. Right. And so they use it. Some people use it more than others. Like even have even in Tour de France, you've got guys who stand up more to climb than than the, than the sit and spin like Lance Armstrong style. Right. So the, there's no one way to do it. And again, I think the, the sit and spin mindset, it got really popularized through uh, through Lance Armstrong. And oh God, what was his coach? Um, that was Lance's Lance Armstrong's um, strategy. 
But again, Lance Armstrong was also taking a bunch of EPO. So maybe if you don't not taking a bunch of EPO, maybe the sit and spin strategy isn't best for you. But so again, like looking at, you know, there is no one way to do it. Um, and so the more that you use that standing pedaling, the less like things like bike fit and all of that really be, are as relevant. So like, I think for most mountain bikers, just your average trail rider, mountain bike fits are not super relevant, right? Because you should be standing up a bunch. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going out on an hour, two hour long ride, I mean, you, there's almost no excuse for you to be spending a lot of time in that high tension seated quadrant. Like you can, you can use these other quadrants effectively on an hour to two hour long ride. Now, again, you're going on a five hour, you know, multi-day race. Like now these things become more important tour to France, right? A month of riding every day. Okay. Now the, the, the fit can become more important because you are going to be spending more time in the seated position. You are going to have to fall back on that high tension seated quadrant a little bit more, but it's all just the context of it. So um, so anyways, yeah, man, I think that, that like once people really kind of understand what I'm saying with it, it's like understand the quadrants there between seated and standing and, and, and the tension levels and then how to use each part of that quadrant effectively. It makes more sense rather than like, you know, I'm not going to stand up and, you know, for a whole hour long climb. And it's like, well, no one's saying to, but you can definitely stand up more than you probably are. And then that mitigates a lot of these other, you know, concerns that, that people have with, well, my seat height and things like that. So, yeah, I hear you. Uh, I mean, I, I won't say, uh, I'd say that I think we're saying the same thing, but I would refine maybe a few statements you made. I, I mean, you said mountain biking for a lot of mountain bikers fit is kind of irrelevant. Mm. I mean, I'm a bike fitter, so I might have a little hard time with that, but I, I think it depends heavily on what kind of discipline the mountain bikers engaged in. You know, if they're just, you know, always low tension seated to get to the top of a hill and then their whole objective is to have fun going downhill and set downhill KOMs, which doesn't make any sense. I don't know why Strava still calls downhill KOMs, but anyway, like then great. That's your, that's how you enjoy the sport. You know, I'm, I'm to borrow a term that Phil Guyman posted on Instagram many moons ago, like anyone who's enjoying a bike, having fun doing it and is doing it safely, they're doing it right. Like there's no judgment for me about how you should ride a bike. If you want to only go downhill fast and that's your thing and you could give a crap how fast you go uphill, I'm not going to think that you're, you know, not at some level of cycling. That said, for there is a, a, a somewhat dying but still existent population of racers who are in that cross-country side of things, endurance mountain bike side of things, not enduro and they're all about the performance and the hour-long climbs. I'm talking the Breck Epic crowd, you know, the Breck 100 crowd, that type of thing. The what's the one? There's a Salt Lake City 100 or 50 or something. That type of event. And clearly, those types of riders are going to spend a fair amount of time in that seated high tension. And that's exactly what you're just saying. You know, more towards the Tour de France end of the spectrum riders are going to exist more in that quadrant. And I think that then bike fit does, it becomes more relevant, right? Because your, your demands of your event are both about descending fast, descending safely, negotiating terrain with flow and, and balance. But at the, on the other end, you've got to produce extended times at high power output or high tension, you might say. Right. So, yeah. 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 No, man, I, 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 uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's all in kind of understanding the context um for you and what's gonna be important and and man and even then like you know a a bike fit like you know when i say that i am referring to a pretty formulaic approach to uh getting someone onto a bike 
And this is something that, you know, I've, I've pointed out many times in, in my, over the years is that, you know, when you're getting a bike fit, what are you really fitting? Are you just fitting somebody's dysfunction to the bike, right? Like if they can't bend over and touch their toes, what are we fitting here guys? Right? So I think that if you're, if you're using a bike fit, I think a bike fit is important, right? Cause I, I you, you could say what I do is help people with bike fit because I can, you look at how they're on the bike and that's not how you should be on the bike, but maybe the answer is in fixing the person on the bike rather than having to make all of these minute little adjustments to the bike itself. And then again, now once you get a rider who has taken care of those things, like he, you know, they, they don't have any glaring dysfunctions and, you know, they are in these contexts where they are going to be in these positions. Well, then the bike fit itself becomes more and more relevant and more and more important. But I think that the, you know, the, the bike fit gets misused. And unfortunately there's, there's uh, more people out there that don't, that use bike fits that don't really understand functional movement and, and how to help people move better in the first place. And so they end up, you know, you're not really fixing the real problem. Right. And so it uh, becomes a bit of a band-aid solution. So I just want to clarify. So like, you know, like somebody working with someone like you is obviously, you know, uh, you know, really well versed in, in more than just like the esoterics of bike fitting and you can bring a more holistic approach to the whole process. I'm sure working with you is going to be way more valuable than just like your local bike shop, having some guy who went to the specialized bike fitting school and, you know, you just pay your whatever money and come in and he just runs you through the formula. Right. Like maybe that's valuable. Maybe it's not right. But it, without some sort of understanding and context, I think that it gets misused a lot. There's a lot of riders who would benefit more from working on their ability to touch their toes than they would from, you know, really stressing out about the exact position of all of, you know, their seat and seat angle and all of these things. So I generally tell people, man, find something that feels comfortable for you. And then we'll start adjusting from there based on how you, where your movement dysfunctions are and just kind of things from there. But man, like you said, like comfort, comfort is hugely important. So, um, man, somebody can tell you this is the best bike fit in the world, but man, if you don't feel comfortable in it or you really just don't feel balanced in it, then, then it might not be the best thing for you. So, um, but yeah, man, no, I think that they definitely have value. Uh, but just like a lot of things in the cycling world, they can be a little misunderstood and mis misused. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. You, you brought up a really good point. You know, there's a very popular fitting system out there and their ethos is to fit the bike to match the rider. Right. And that's exactly the point you were just getting at. Why in the hell would I fit a bike to match someone's horrendous dysfunction? If someone can't touch their toes, they can't hip hinge properly. They're sitting in the spot on the bike with a, you know, rainbow shaped Ichabod crane spine and tons of kyphosis. I'm not going to fit a bike to allow that or enable that. That's going to send them down the road further of dysfunction. So I, I couldn't disagree with that philosophy more. It's completely screwed up and backwards. What I want to do is educate the rider about how they move, how they ought to move better, how we can improve their ability to hip hinge and lunge and how they can have more stable feet and ankles and how their shoulders ought to be anchored in their torso so they're not just flopping around and their bars are going all over the place on every descent because they've got no core stability. How they need to activate the rotation of the thoracic spine and be able to pull on the bars with proper force, stable force, all these things. So when, so my perspective is kind of the opposite. It's like start from the rider, understand their physiology, look at their limits, 
look at how, and I try to choose my language very carefully here because as someone who sees someone and assesses them, what I've noticed is sometimes we can get ourselves in a little bit of trouble. You say things to a client like, oh, your glutes aren't firing. <laughs> and then, and clients, man, they, they take that stuff like glue and they go, oh, my glutes don't work. I'm a bad person. You know, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not what I'm saying. Okay, let's, we have to be very careful about our language. Like your glutes are firing. They're functioning. They're not dead tissue. You know, your muscles actually work. The issue is, are they working to the degree that they, we want them to for you to be a functional, healthy cyclist and to be able to do things like lift a cooler or, you know, pick up your dog or, you know, whatever. So without going down that rabbit hole too much, it's like we have to assess the athlete, look at their physiology and then look at the bike and then discuss the demands of their event. That for me is bike fit. Physiology of the rider in contrast to the demands of the event. What do you want to do? What's your dream goal objective? Where are you now? Okay, let's look at the delta between those two points. How do we get you from here to there? What's required? Are you able to bend over and get in that super aero time trial position? Do you have the strength to stabilize your shoulders and hands? Do you have the grip strength to hold on on a really intense downhill? Okay, let's examine that. So I think that that's going to be the the future of that is more, you know, people like you start to, I was uh, talking with uh, someone earlier and they were just talking about how, you know, the different silos that, that uh, professionals in different fields put themselves in. So you know, like bike fitters talk to bike fitters and, yes. you know, movement coaches talk to movement coaches and doctors talk to doctors. And so like, it's, it's guys that are able to kind of cross into many different silos and have, you know, an understanding and ability to converse in these different areas that are able to kind of forge the future of what some of these areas are going to be uh, sort of thing. So, but yeah, man, that's uh, um, that, yeah, I, I, I agree completely. So yeah. Well, but yeah, no, if I has a chance to work with you, man, they should take it. I definitely didn't want anybody to uh, uh, get the wrong impression as far as that goes. That's exactly one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast as a guest is because I saw all the work you're doing and the fact that you invented a pedal and you're thinking very critically about how to apply force to a pedal as a cyclist. And you've got all these integrated methods using, you know, clubs and kettlebells and bands and stuff. And, you know, I think we're getting pretty long here on this episode. Yeah, so. Yeah. If you're up for it, I would love to invite you on for a part two and we can tackle things like kettlebells and strength training and strength yeah, and conditioning. I know, we didn't even get into we that. We didn't even get the in there. So method and isometric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Breath work, all that stuff. So, you know, it's a great time, a good problem to have when we've got so much to talk about and we're so passionate about our craft and our sport that we yeah. have to have an episode two, so... No, man, I'd love to come on. It'd be fun to come on and, uh, and, and bounce some of these things off you and hear your thoughts on them as well. But uh, yeah, no, that'd, that'd be great. So yeah, just let me know when and, and I'll be here. Awesome. Well, James, thank you so much for all your time and uh, your energy today. And thank you for your passion for the sport. It's really cool to see people doing what you're doing. I appreciate it. And it's been a great opportunity for me to discuss and learn from you. And that's why I do this. So uh, much gratitude. Um, in the show notes, we're going to put links to James, his main site. We're also going to put links to the Catalyst pedal. But uh, will you tell us a little bit about where people can find out more about you? I know you've got a YouTube channel. Tell us tell us your resources. Yeah, man, for sure. I mean, the, the easiest spot to find me is bikejames.com. You know, I send out a, uh, you know, bi-weekly. So twice a week, I send out an email newsletter. So you can go to bikejames.com and sign up for that free newsletter. Um, man, I got all sorts of free resources and, and stuff for you there on that site. So 
uh, you can dig around. I got some pro, you know, training programs and stuff, but, uh, yeah, bikejames.com is definitely the best spot to find out more. And, um, you know, my, you know, YouTube channel is, uh, it, it, you just look up bike James on YouTube and, but, cool. um, yeah. And then, uh, the pedaling innovations.com is the website for the catalyst pedal. But again, I've got a link there at bikejames.com as well. So you can pretty much find out all things about the bike James empire, uh, there at the website. But um, yeah, the Catalyst Pedal, you can learn a lot more about that. I got links to the science and info on that. And it is the only product in the cycling world that comes with a money-back guarantee. Like, you know, that's how strongly we believe in the product. Like I am, I'm one of you guys, man. I'm a rider, right? Like I was not a pro rider who was given something throughout my whole career. And then I retired and I got a job with some company giving me stuff. And, you know, I, I not to like, you know, uh, disparage that, but people would be surprised at the, uh, you know, the experience that a lot of people who work at companies have had and how far removed it is from the average rider's experience and just dealing with the frustration of like, oh man, I thought this thing was going to be great for me and I bought it and it sucks and I'm stuck with it because I can't return it. Or, you know, you need somebody to help and you're just sitting on the other end of the line from someone who could obviously care less uh, now that they have your money. So, uh, we really strive to be way different, like a, a completely different animal. Um, so yeah, you get, you can buy them, try them. If they don't work for you, send them back. No questions asked. We'll give your money. No problem. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, uh, you know, like I said, man, I'm here to just help riders have more fun on the bike. Cause, uh, at the end of the day, man, that's really what it's all about. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'll reach out and we'll we'll get a part two going and unpack more of the nuts and bolts on stuff. But I appreciate you uh, taking time to share all your philosophies and thoughts with me today. Yeah, for sure, Colby. No problem, man. Attention, Space Monkeys. Public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So... Don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. That includes Chris Case, Trevor Connor, or Jana Martin. What I'm saying is, when we say things, we're speaking for ourselves, not for other people, which should be self-evident. But I kind of think disclaimers basically say things that are self-evident, which makes you wonder why we have disclaimers. Anyway, also, if you want to reach out and talk to me about things, feedback on the podcast, good, bad, or otherwise, you may do so at the following email address, info at cyclinginalignment.com. That's all spelled just like it sounds, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.